Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is the Attack on Titan special event. In honor of the epic conclusion to the show that defines this generation of anime, we're reviewing every single episode of the final season. This week, we're reviewing episode 70, Deceiver. As always, there'll be spoilers about anything that's happened previously in Attack on Titan, so you've been warned. Two words. Two words. That's all it takes to describe this episode. Those words? Fuck Gabby. Fuck Gabby, fuck Gabby, fuck. <laughs> has anyone heard that song? Okay, t- tell tell everyone about the song that has recently come out, apparently, that you showed me the other day. Yeah, so it was actually our friend Aaron who introduced us both to the song. And if you did not know, Aaron is part of the YouTube channel Under the Bun. And he recently did a collab with us on Strictly Anime episode 27 28 28 part two of code Gias. yep so if you haven't listened to that i recommend you listen to it right after this podcast but yeah aaron sent us a link to this song that someone by the name of chrissa sje put together and it's called fuck gabby and i think he made it the episode after she kills sasha browse and yeah that that song is basically the epitome of this episode um, and basically any episode that features Gabby because all she does is cause problems to the point where we have to say, fuck Gabby. Honestly, the song, it really does encapsulate all of the, the feelings I feel like the anti-Gabby team feels at this point. It encapsulate, encapsulates all the feelings that I have, that's for sure. Um, except for maybe the parts about Reiner. I'm still kind of, you know, like pro-Reiner at this point. Um, but I, I agree with him. Aaron's done nothing wrong at this point. Aaron ain't done nothing wrong. If you haven't heard it yet, the song is honestly a banger. Like, it's it, lyrics aside, the song is fantastic. Um, I, I'm... If it's on Spotify or if they ever put on Spotify, I'm it adding is it. on Spotify. Is it really? Okay, that's going on my playlist. Yeah, it's for sure. not going on my anime playlist <laughs> since it's not an official anime track, although it should be. Um, but it is definitely going on my my secret playlist. Is it your weeb secret weeb playlist? Yeah, my secret weeb playlist. But for those of you who are not familiar with the song, we'll go ahead and play a short snippet for you right now. What a banger. Yeah. We'll also link um link the song in our show notes, so definitely check it out. Cause again, it just it's just perfect. It's everything, all the emotion that I've been feeling towards Gabby in in song form. Yeah, so props again to Krista SJE for condensing all of our rage and emotion into this wonderful song dedicated to a not-so-wonderful person. <laughs> all right, so moving on, um, because, you know, fuck Gabby, this was the first episode I sort of didn't want to watch a second time. We've been re-watching each episode in preparation for these podcast episodes about Attack on Titan, so that everything's fresh in our heads. But yeah, this is the, honestly the first time that I was like, I really don't want to rewatch it. 
only because I hate Gabby so much and she's awful in this episode. Now, granted, she was also awful in the episode where she killed Sasha, but there was a lot of other stuff going on where I felt like, okay, I can I can stomach that part in order to rewatch the episode again. But yeah, this is honestly the first one that I was I was just not looking forward to. I mean, part of it is this is like the third quote unquote talking episode um, that we've gotten so far after the whole Liberio destruction arc. Um and yeah, this one is a bit of a slower paced and character focused episode that we've seen time and again. Um, of course, it focuses on arguably the two greatest characters of the show. And I say that with some sarcasm, um, but it does pepper in like other little pieces of information that I think they want to set us up with before again looking at the preview for next week's episode before it really jumps into a, another major plot point in the series. Let's move into the synopsis so we can talk a little bit more about those two very controversial characters. Yeah, so let's go ahead and jump right into Season 4, Episode 70, Deceiver. Gird your loins and take those Advils, people, because this is going to be a gung-ho Gabby and Falco punch-centric episode. In their prison cell, Gabby fakes illness as a dum-dum in distress in order to grab the guard's attention and pull a fast one on him by turning his head to brain stroganoff with a cloth-wrapped brick. They escape to a Bob Ross landscape painting as Reiner awakens in a Marleyan hospital, asking where these two fucks have fucked off to. After having a pretty audible argument about what to do next, Gung-Ho Gabby and Falco Punch are discovered in the forest by a girl named Kaya, who offers them refuge at a nearby stable. But it's not just any stable, mind you. Unbeknownst to the pair, it's the Bross Stables, home of the best potato girl that Gabby blasted to eternal paradise. Falco Punch does his best to cover for the both of them while Gung-Ho Gabby struggles to commingle with the devils that have welcomed her so graciously into her home, but fuck if I care about her feelings at this point. Elsewhere in Paradise, Homie Kiyomi, the sly snake that she is, returns to the world's most dangerous island to congratulate the scouts on Operation Weapons of Marley Destruction, and brings along a prototype of a flying boat powered by the island's Eevee Iceburst Stone. Meanwhile, Metal Gear Hanj interrogates and incarcerates four scouts, one of them Waka Floka, about leaking Aaron's imprisonment to the public, which decries such an abhorrent action taken against the so-called savior of parodies. Mikasa berates one of the leaks, a scout named Luis, that she saved during the Battle of Trost, but is shaken when Luis salutes her within her cell and affirms her support for Aaron Jägermeister. To complete the interrogation trifecta, an unusually creepy genuine Pikshisu asks Yelena about indirectly exerting influence on Waka Floka and Aaron during a railway inauguration earlier in the year. Back at the House of Bras, Gabby continues to be a bratty bitch and Kaya drops the bomb about knowing she and Falco Punch are Marleyans because their earlier conversation in the forest could be heard by fucking pretty much anyone, but covers for them at the farm to avoid suspicion. Kaya shows them her childhood home and recounts the harrowing tale of how a titan ordered her mother off the parody's menu. Gabby has the unfathomable balls to say that Kaya's family deserved it, but Kaya strikes back and asks the brainwashed bozo how they could be responsible for incidents that happened thousands of years ago. Falco Punch ends the verbal sparring match with an apology on behalf of Marley, and Kaya recounts how her rescue by Best Potato Girl inspired her to help out these two idiot kids. She then asks the pair to join her family for dinner at a restaurant run by a Marleyan, wink wink, where they can hopefully find a way back home and out of our goddamn sight for the time being. 
In a post-credits epilogue back in Marley, Commander Maggot informs the Warrior Titans of Zeke's treachery and announces a plan to attack Paradise in six months with a global alliance behind them. Reiner, however, implores that they throw a surprise party for Paradise immediately before Zeke gets ready to rumbling. I feel like the focus, or at least what we should talk about first with this episode, is Gabby. Let's have like a, a little Gabby, <laughs> a Gabby. little vent session about Gabby because I feel like this has been a long time coming. Um, and this episode really just draws out all of the the ugly parts of her. Um, I'll start with Falco, though. Falco, in my mind, is still best boy. Um, he's not perfect because, honestly, at this point, he just needs to man up, backhand the shit out of Gabby, and tell her to shut the fuck up already. Either that or ditch her ass because she's not worth risking his own life for. In my mind, Falco needs to kind of draw the line somewhere with her. Um, he should have stopped Gabby from getting on the airship. He should have stopped Gabby from shooting Sasha. He should have stopped Gabby from killing that soldier with a socked brick, especially when he said to her that it was overkill. He should have left her ass in that forest and went back to the Browse farm on his own. He should have stopped her from challenging Kaya when she saved them, protected their identity, and took them to her hometown, which is a very vulnerable place for her. At the very least, Falco actually tried to rip that armband off when she was um, when they were in the forest. But then she freaks out on him and tackles him to the ground to try and take it back. It's just there, there's so many opportunities for Falco to really set Gabby straight because um, she's she's a wild card right now. She's kind of like Aaron was earlier on in the show. She just is a bomb waiting to go off and just continues to go off over and over again. I think if we're making that comparison, if Gabby is the Aaron in this situation, I would imagine Falco almost being like the Armin, where, you know, Armin, much like Falco, has a good head on him, but he is just too timid enough and um, not confident enough to really exert any sort of assertiveness uh, when it comes to whatever Gabby does. Because like you said, she's she's a wild card and he just doesn't know how to deal with that. Yeah, he's he's almost too kind in this moment. Um, also, we all know that he's got a crush on her, so I'm sure it's difficult for him to really put his foot down with her. But he's got to do it, not only for her sake, but more importantly for his sake. Um, because another point that I have about Gabby is I get that she's cautious at first because of all the propaganda that she was fed her whole life about the devils of paradise but even after the browse family shows her kindness she still doesn't warm up to them even though falco starts to trust them um and what why i'm bringing this up is because i feel like falco is sticking his neck out for her and and it just doesn't make any sense he, he's going to risk his own life to save somebody who doesn't really care about saving him in return um, specifically, he tells her when they first reach the the farm uh, to keep her mouth shut and let him do all the talking. But even then, she still freaks out on Sasha's mom and like slaps her hand away, which, by the way, how dare you slap Sasha's mom, especially given everything else. Um, and then she opens her mouth at the stable, or I guess when she's having lunch with, with Kaya, and reveals that they're from Marley. Like These things put her... And, and Falco at risk. And and Falco's doing what he can to support her, but also to ensure that they survive. But that simply doesn't matter to her because honestly, she's selfish. 
not only that, but for someone who wants to survive so bad and win so bad, especially because she wants to confront Zeke, why would she reveal herself over and over again like that? But again, my, my biggest gripe here with the relationship between Gabby and Falco is that he is willing to risk everything for her and she will make the smallest little slip up and not even care not thinking about how it's going to impact Falco and put him at risk as well. Like, it's fine if you want to go ahead and get yourself killed, Gabby, but at least try to keep Falco safe. As annoying as it is that he is still doing his best to protect her, I think it harkens back to the episode where Reiner told him that he needed to inherit the Armor Titan, although I don't know how relevant that is anymore since they're not all in the same place, but he needs to get a hold of her and kind of take her away from this life so that she can live it to the fullest even though again she seems so brainwashed at this point that for her to even to even give her a normal life just seems kind of dumb <laughs> i don't even think she wants that like yeah she would resist that so hard mm-hmm. but i think like falco is just so tied down by that promise that he is doing everything within his power to keep her in check as difficult as that is in this episode Ultimately, here's my problem with Gabby. She is a brat who doesn't want to be open-minded. Falco and her are the same age, grew up in the same place, had the same upbringing, and were in the military together. They hung out with the same group of people and had the same propaganda forced on them. There is little to no difference in their situations, and yet Falco is kind-hearted, open-minded, and wants peace. Um, she absolutely refuses those things for some reason and continues to twist and challenge words to fit her narrative and her perception of parodies and, and kind of the world really, um, and is refusing to face reality. And that's why I simply cannot sympathize with her character. If there were some other driving force behind her ideology or her stubbornness, then perhaps I could be okay with her character, but there's not. Like Aaron's a very controversial, controversial character, but we understand kind of what's going on with um, with him. We understand what happened to him in the past, what what basically led him from point A to point B, you know, where we are today with him. So some of it can be forgiven. Some of it can be sympathized with. But with Gabby, unless there's something they're not telling us about her, she's lived a pretty, like, stable life, I guess, for lack of a better term. And and a very similar life to to Falco. So like it's it's like why is Falco able to see things in such a different light than she is and be more open-minded and more caring of a person? Yeah, thinking about it, it's it's weird because as you were saying like we know so much about Aaron and like why he has his I guess his anger issues, but um yeah, like he had a tough upbringing up until and I guess he still has that because it all started when his mother got eaten by that titan you don't really see that situation with gabby unless like you said there's something that they're not telling us because back in marley seems like she was living fine with her family um and then she got the invitation or however to be the uh candidate for one of the warrior titans um so she's lived a pretty cushy life that is a fantastic point like yeah you're right she she hasn't again like unless there's something that 
um, they're not showing us, which if there isn't, they need to show us soon. Otherwise, I'm going to completely write off Gabby as like the worst character in this show. Um, but you're right. Like she she still has her family. She's got Reiner still like her, not even just her immediate family. She has her extended family as well. She clearly has had a great time uh, being in the military, not saying it's like a good thing or anything, but she in the first episode alone, she just looked forward to fighting. She just wanted to kind of jump into battle and like found it to be something very pleasant. And then it, you know later in the season, or I guess a couple episodes later, the rest of the the Eldians are like lifting them up, lifting her up on their shoulders and cheering her on and saying she's fantastic and she's celebrating all this. So she really, until the scouts arrive, had not had any kind of realistic outlook on on war and, and being in the military. Therefore, I think that she, to your point, has lived that cushy life even though she was put in the military. Does that make sense? Yeah. But one could argue, I guess, that Falco is um, a Grice. Grice? How do you say it? I guess Grice. A Grice. We'll go with Grice. And that the Grices were restorationists. So maybe he like either had some of those ideologies passed on to him or it's simply in his blood to kind of see outside the box and like think positively about different situations. But again, even then it's like, come on. They, they have such a similar background, yet one is on one one side of the spectrum and one is on the other side of the spectrum. I do also want to say, though, that I love Kaya. She's kind of weird. I think it's because of what happened back when Sasha saved her. Um, she's got kind of that cold demeanor to her, but after what she's been through, it's understandable. But honestly, this bitch is hardcore. She overheard Falco and Gabby literally screaming about being from Marley, but that didn't stop her from immediately inviting them to the farm, giving them food and shelter, and then she goes further and protects their identity even after Gabby tries to stab her with a pitchfork. Like, Kaya, Kaya's amazing. She's really embodying all things Sasha and really wants to be like her. Yeah, I think it's just her hair that bothers me. Uh, but other than that, um, I did want to go back to when I think Falco and Gabby questioned how they, how she knew that they were Marlians and yeah, like you said, Kaya just flat out says, I could hear you in the forest because they were so fucking loud. <laughs> um, I found it, I thought it kind of like hilariously refutes, I don't know if this is somewhat of a trope in anime where you have this character who reveals their in sudden insight on something because of their superior like sleuthing skills or intellectual prowess. But here it's just because Gabby and Falco were just having a really loud conversation <laughs> in a forest. Like anyone could have picked that up. I think part of the reason I love Kaya so much is because she has pretty much delivered to me what I've been asking for, what I've been waiting for this whole time. She handed Gabby's ass to her on a platter. I mean, you get that fantastic scene where Gabby tries to justify the demands for parodies to atone for their sins, and Kaya comes in and crushes her logic to the ground. On one hand, it kind of portrays the consequences of all the Marley propaganda. But on the other hand, it shows how blind Gabby is. Because again, Falco had the same propaganda fed to him, but he was able to see past it all. Um, it, it also kind of makes me think back to the earlier episode. I think it was the same one where Sasha got killed where Falco is trying to get Gabby to not board the airship and she's questioning like why did they do this why did they why did they destroy our home and Falco says it's because it's revenge and then Gabby looks at him and says but did you see it happen I think this is like the exact same situation just without Kaya actually saying those words she basically 
could have said the same thing here. Like, Gabby, you're saying that, you know, the people of Paradise did all these terrible things, but did you see it happen? So it just shows that Gabby's also contradicting herself. And it just it just makes me want to, like, grab her by the shoulders and shake her. Like, shut up. Open your eyes, man. And going back to Gabby's question of did you see it happen, Kaya is basically the embodiment of the answer, right? She takes Gabby and Falco to the place where her mother was eaten before her very eyes. And even as Gabby sees that, she still goes back to, again, providing these propaganda-fueled responses that I think carry less and lesser validity as Kaya continues to refute them. Um, I wrote a note here that Gabby's logic, it almost holds as strongly as, especially in like the, I guess, in Christian history, like Jewish people were always blamed for the crucifixion of Christ. Um, I think the term was called Jewish deicide. And this was like a sentiment that kind of grew in medieval times and obviously most likely during the Holocaust. Um, so yeah, it feels like Gabby's logic does not hold up against Kaya's because as Kaya says in the episode, like how, how is her mother the scapegoat, I guess, for things that happened with the Aldeans to the rest of the world thousands of years ago? And it's interesting because Kaya phrases the same question to Gabby that Aaron had asked Reiner in that cellar, which is, what exactly did my mom do to get eaten? Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. It's really just parodies, like, putting things all out there for Marley to kind of see and have to answer for, similarly to how Marley wants parodies to answer for those atrocities from a century ago. But I think what really kind of brings things home as to why I hate Gabby and why, you know, she is just like the worst. Even after Kaya backs her into a corner and really just lays it on thick and says, look, you're wrong in this instance and gets Gabby to finally shut up. Falco comes in and explains to Kaya, gives her the answer to her question. Like, here's what happened. This is why your mother died. I'm not saying it's it's justified, but here's why. It's because of what happened four years ago. It's Marley's fault. And gives her that bit of closure and apologizes for all of that. But even in that moment, Gabby scolds him for apologizing. Like, Gabby, shut up. Like, oh my gosh, let him at least like do his thing. You want to do your thing? That's fine. You want to be a cold-hearted bitch? That's fine. But let him do his thing. But that again, this this moment, even after again being backed into a corner, being uh, having all of your logic destroyed by somebody who lived the consequences of your country's actions, she still is like, don't apologize to her. Why are you saying all these things? Like, man, Gabby just like pushes my buttons. I can kind of see it. Like, it's hard to stray from your beliefs when you've stood firm in them for so long, even as you see increasing evidence against it. Um, but is it worth it when you're literally putting your life and your your best friend's life at risk? Like, I'm not saying it's right, but yeah. I, I'm just saying like I understand like why Gabby won't have like a change of heart so suddenly. Well, that's fine, but at least keep your mouth shut until you're back on Marley soil yeah. and you aren't going to die. <laughs> but talking about this scene more... Um, this exchange between Kaya and Gabby, I think looking at it more high level, I saw it more as, you know, like these Eldians are just being used in this proxy war that's just tearing their own race apart. Um, and seeing this to be what both Gabby and Kaya are struggling to understand is just kind of, it's it's kind of sad. Um, and then going back to the beginning of the episode where, again, Gabby keeps saying, like, I'm one of the good Eldians um, and trying to 
distance herself from these so-called devils of parodies who are the bad Eldians, but seeing that she's getting treated pretty well, um, it's just, it's heartbreaking to see that this is what their race has come to. Yeah, I mean, think about how powerful, which I think is the whole point, the Eldian race would be if they would just unite. I mean, not not even because they have Titan powers or the ability to transform into Titans, but if they actually band together, there would be they would be quite a force to be reckoned with, which I think is Aaron and, and Zeke's whole point. Mm-hmm. Just one quick note about Kaya. Um, as the episode, or as this season implies, like Kaya was a previous character that Sasha had saved. Um, I think it was back in season two, uh, specifically episode 27, I'm Home, for anyone who's keeping track of that. I thought it was nice that they actually kept the same voice actress who had voiced Kaya back then. Oh, did they really? Mm-hmm. Um, it's Nana Hamasaki. Um, I think her IMDb credits put her as girl <laughs> in that episode, <laughs> but but now that uh, she has a proper name, Kaya, they they gave her the credit that she deserves. So it's it's nice that you know even though season two feels like years ago, maybe what six seven years ago. Um, they still kept the same voice actor after all those years. It sounds perfect, though, for Attack on Titan. I mean, again, this story is so tightly written. And as we're seeing here, um, the creator, Isayama, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't let any bit of information, any bit of dialogue, or any character go to waste. I mean, he's bringing Kaya back into the fray um, and giving her a very significant part. Although it's a it's a minor part, it's very significant to this this section of the story. And he even does the same thing with the girl that Mikasa saved, um, Luis, I think is her name, mm-hmm. and gives her, again, a, a small but significant part to Mikasa's story. So we'll touch on that in, in a little bit. But again, it's it's great to see that they are keeping things so, so um, I don't know, it's like a well-oiled machine. Everything just works perfectly. And it, it makes sense that they would want to bring back the same voice actress, even though she played such a minor part before. Mm-hmm. The one thing that kind of fell flat for me in this episode is, although we do see Gabby get her just desserts and get her ass handed to her by Kaya, she still doesn't know that the Browse family um, is the same family that Sasha is from, right? Because I don't think it's ever mentioned. Like, Kaya says that she was rescued by Sasha, but never mentions her by name. Yeah, that's right. This is the, the one piece that we're still waiting on, that delicious moment where she just eats her fucking words and hopefully feels the gravity of of what she did, feels the the guilt and the consequences. And actually, one more thing that I noted in this episode is when Gabby and Falco first meet the Browse family, Gabby comments that they have Southern Marlian accents, and it's an observation that's just quickly glazed over because Falco takes over for most of the rest of the scene. Which makes me think, like, did Mr. and Mrs. Browse escape from Marley at some point? That's what I'm wondering, too. And honestly, you're right. Like, it was dropped so, like, subtly that I missed it the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, I was like, wait a minute. Hold up. Like, what did she just say? But that is a, a really good point. You know, why do they have sudden, Southern Marley accents? What does that mean about them? What's their backstory? But it also kind of makes me wonder if they've been living in parodies for so long and still have this Southern Marley accent, that means in general there is a Marley accent. So how is it that nobody, well, 
I guess we haven't seen enough screen time with Falco and Gabby, but my, my question is like, will someone just listen to the way Gabby and Falco talk and immediately find out that they're Marley? Like, how are they supposed to conceal their identities if there is a Marley accent and they have it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess that's kind of glossed over too. Um, but yeah, just that quick comment from Gabby, it makes me still hold out on the theory that Sasha and Gabby are somewhat related. Because again, Gabby Brown, Sasha Browse, all you do is just change one letter in the last name and it kind of shows a, a familial connection. And I think if they do end up having some sort of relation, um, that would just hit the nail on the head even more for, for Gabby to realize that she's a fucking idiot. That would rock her fucking world, that's for sure. And the Browses are such good people. Hopefully she opens her eyes to at least them um, because they're accepting of Marleans as we saw when they first met Niccolo. Mm -hmm. And they also took in all these orphans whose parents died four years ago at the hands of Marley's attack plan. But I am very much looking forward to that delicious moment. I, I use that all the time now with this, that delicious moment um, from the office, if anyone knows that reference, but um, that delicious moment for, for us to have when Gabby realizes, you know, that she's the one that killed Sasha. She's been staying with the Browse family. And as Kaya mentions, they're going to a restaurant run or owned by a Marleyan. So assuming that's Niccolo, how will she kind of face Niccolo in that moment if it's revealed while he's there? So we're getting so close. We're getting so close to that realization, that, that fantastic moment. I cannot wait. But I do want to mention really quick that the real MVP of this episode is the horse. The horse biting wow. Gabby and then laughing at her, it basically just resembles all of us. So long live Horsan. I'm team Horsan forever. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like mystery from SpongeBob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that same energy. I know people are calling the horse um, Jean, and I think that's because he's got a horse face or whatever. <laughs> so like Jean got his revenge on, on Gabby in that moment. <laughs> I did want to make a quick comment on the visuals of this episode, specifically the scene where Gabby and Falco are in the forest. Um, I know we rarely ever comment on Mappa's animation style or the way that they draw visuals to this point, and I would say most of them are pretty critical, but I actually do have a positive one, um, specifically about the natural landscape in that particular scene. Um, I know I joked in the synopsis that it reminded me of like a Bob Ross painting background, but I thought the way that they had made that background was just exquisite and just very beautiful. It, it felt nearly on par with the backdrops that Wit Studio had put in the first three seasons. Are you talking about the lake or the pond or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, that looked really nice. And honestly, it was probably one of the brightest in terms of colors and just light. Um one of the brightest scenes or um, environments that we've gotten in Attack on Titan season four, or really mm -hmm. in Attack on Titan in general, because it's typically a very like dark and gloomy looking show. Yeah. So as much as we rile on, you know, the rotoscoping and um, the weirdly drawn characters, whatever, uh, I still have to give props to Mappa where they where they deserve it. They've been doing a great job overall. Um, but yeah, this this was nice to kind of see a change of pace for them. I'm sure it was fun probably for the the animation team to be able to draw something pretty and bright and colorful for a change versus like a dimly lit room or a sunset or the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. and I know I'm kind of working backwards here, but um, one other comment at the very beginning of the episode is during the prison break, 
how is it that there are literally no other guards that could find Falco and Gabby outside of the guard that Gabby had bludgeoned to death? I know. I would kind of question that too. Like maybe they aren't used to having a lot of war criminal prisoners. So they, they are not, you know, kind of heavily guarded. I guess, but it, it's, it looks like a fortress once they escape, but they just... They're able to do it so easily for some reason. I don't know. Possible plot hole, but does this show ever have plot holes? I don't know. I'm sure there's a mm. way that they escaped that Isayama could explain to us. Or maybe it's in the manga. Who knows? It's all just like a plot driven. <laughs> These are just small nitpicks that I have, but I just thought that was weird. We do see Hizuru, the nation of Hizuru, return to the island of parody. So this answers our questions from the last episode, um, we were kind of talking about, if you tuned in on the last Attack on Titan episode that we had, we talked about Hizuru and um, the fact that they decided not to team up with Paradis um, in those flashbacks that we saw. So then I kind of was questioning, okay, so if they didn't team up with them, we did see Lady Kiyomi talking to Willie Tiber before the play went on, kind of wishing him good luck and then peacing out. But I was also kind of wondering, how did Willie come to the conclusion that the scouts were on Marley? So basically, bringing that all together, this answers my question of, um, you know, whether she was involved with kind of tipping Willie off. And I don't think so, because clearly she's still in cahoots with with parody. So maybe there was just something else going on that that allowed him to come to that conclusion that the scouts had infiltrated Marley, but it doesn't seem like Hizuru is what caused that. I don't know. I feel like Hizuru is just playing both sides of the conflict and they they're just there to be like opportunistic when it's to their own advantage or their gain cuz I, I think someone in the military commented in the last episode that they're like he's just basically just in it for the money yeah i could see that maybe they are maybe they are the Mm. ones who leaked it to to willie because how convenient is is it that you know they saw the destruction that the parody squad had delivered to marley's military in liberio so now they're just crawling back and saying and they're congratulating them on, on a job well done it just doesn't it seems so disingenuine i guess yeah lady kiyomi does kind of seem like a snake I could see that. But can I make a Star Wars reference? Go ahead. Oh, okay. Here we go. It's usually you that does that, but this <laughs> time I get to make a Star Wars Star Wars reference. So this just reminds me of, and I have no fucking idea what his name is, but that really weird ass character from um, the second movie that <laughs> has Which Kylo Ren. Mo- oh. Well, I, I'm bad with names and titles, as oh, you all know. Oh, so. the Benicio Del Toro character. Yeah. Okay, so you know how he, like, two-timed, um, two-timed whatever they're... Finn and Rose, See, I, yeah. I'm terrible with names and titles, guys. Like, you know this by now, so I rely on Carl for that. But yeah, yes. I forgot his name, too. I'm going to look it up. That's uh, who Hizuru, as a nation, I guess, or maybe Lady Kiyomi, that's what... Those are the vibes that I'm getting, especially if that is the case, that they are kind of two-timing both Paradise and Marley, then that's who they are in the Star Wars world. Yeah, his name was DJ, which is a, not a very Star Warsy name. Did they even say his name in the movie? I don't think so. They, I know they call him like the Codebreaker or whatever, but still, it's a very, very plain name for a, a Star Wars character. But I digress. Um, the other thing about Hizuru that kind of makes me think like they're just a bunch of snakes is we see in this scene where they come back to paradise it 
that they're trying to gain back Paradis's favor by showing their their flying boat or flying prototype, which I think they're going to use to observe, uh, like a test of the rumbling, which I believe is implied it's going to be in Shiganshina district because they close off the district to the public or having people evacuate from that district. But it's just interesting because I feel like they probably presented Marley with that same prototype. Because if you remember from, I think it was the second episode of the season, Marley was struggling to attain like aerial superiority. Um, So it's just funny that, you know, Hizru has so happens to have this this prototype on hand that they're now bringing to parodies because they think you know parodies has the upper hand in this this coming conflict but why would parodies need this flying machine don't they have the airship that onion coupon flew like didn't they fly all the way back to parodies on that thing i i imagine i would assume that this is also like an assault craft because I think a zeppelin is just there as transport and i all they say about this thing is that it's a flying boat i don't know if it has weapons attached to them but thinking back to the conversation that the marley brass had about having no aerial superiority i would think that hezru has this fitted with weaponry and that's what might give them an advantage here's a theory i just thought of this so it's probably like nowhere near realistic but if the flying machine that they're presenting does have weapons on it, what's the likelihood that when the rumbling happens, they're going to like kill all the Titans that are coming out of the wall and like ruin, ruin the rumbling for them. Mm. I don't know. That could be very unfeasible at this point, but, but um, he's They're, they're pretty much snakes. <laughs> so yeah, I, don't, so maybe I, they would I could like see that. that. Yeah. I could see that happening. The next thing that I wanted to comment on in this episode are these scenes with, Hanj. Uh, we do see her in her first scene. She is grilled by the general public about Aaron's imprisonment. And then we find out later on that in the interrogation scene that the public had known because there were scouts that had leaked the information to them. And I think uh, an important scene that involves Hanj is that sh- after she tells those um, I guess those leaks that they're going to be tried for, I guess, their insubordination. Um, we see that she kind of collapses in her chair and has like this flashback to a conversation with, I had to actually look up this or rewatch this episode. It's um, the guy's name was Jell Sons, and he was a former member of the interior police that was loyal to the former monarchy that was like a puppet government. And then he had the whole coup d'etat and then he was imprisoned and you know once the scouts claim victory in the coup i think the one line that they omitted from her flashback is that san says to her like when one's role is done another steps in to start the act again and i think that just harkens back to again this season almost being like a cycle we've seen the cycle of violence kind of repeat itself and hopefully trying to find a way to break that cycle but in this sense, it's like a political cycle that's beginning again, where, you know, Hanj is trying to mask as much information from the public as she can. But again, that kind of refutes the the transparency that this new government was supposed to have with its people. Um, so again, it's that cycle of where, you know, the government believes it's kind of acting in the interests of its people. 
um, by keeping Aaron imprisoned, although the public sees him as their savior. Um, but in the reality of the cycle is that the government is just really acting in its own self-interest. And I think that the pressure of leadership is just starting to weigh very heavily on Hanj. Yeah, you can definitely see that in this episode. I, I think it's heartbreaking because you can tell how those citizens really trust her and have a, a good rapport with her because they're not angry when they're questioning her. They're actually kind of sad or concerned. So I think that that is a really tough thing for her to overcome, you know, having to keep this certain, you know, certain level of secrecy, this kind of keep her head on her shoulders, um, even if it means, you know, not being fully transparent with the people who care about her. But then just in general, I think that this role is not suited for Hanj. It's not that Hanj isn't suited for this role because I think she very much is, but I think it's a role that doesn't suit her because it's not a role that she enjoys. It's not a role that allows her to be her normal goofy self. Mm -hmm. It's not even a role that allows her to be, um, that allows her to explore science and all things Titans. I mean, that's what really gets her going is being able to observe Titans, experiment on them, kind of understand and learn more about them. Or as we saw in, I think the previous episode, um, where the Mar or maybe the one before where all the Marlians are kind of getting to know Hanj. I mean, when she's so enthralled by the gun that she's pointing in her eye or the little, um, wooden train set as she's learning about what a train is. I mean, these are the moments that she really comes alive, that she shines the brightest. But in this role as leader of the scouts, she's not able to do that. She doesn't mm -hmm. have the the time or the luxury to be inquisitive, to um, learn and grow. She just has to make tough decisions and kind of be the bad guy. So I think it was definitely a role suited for Erwin. He had that that personality, but it's not a role that's suited for her and her personality. Which again, just affirms what that flashback was saying or with what San was, was saying in that flashback is like she is pigeonhole pigeonholed into into this role, um, even though it's probably not to her her benefit, but because she's doesn't seem as invested in it or is unsure of how how to properly take on the role, she becomes part of that cycle again. And I think she's starting to to notice that. It should just be Armin. I think that's what they're all kind of setting it up to be is that Armin's eventually going to lead. I mean, that's the whole, that's one of the reasons that Levi decided to save him instead of Erwin because he could take up that mantle and, and be the next leader. Yeah. I think you also called out in that scene with Hanj um, and the citizens that, that Reeves guy is in there who was from a previous season um, who like started a company and all that shit. He's like the one guy that's questioning her the most. Yeah. He, he says like, He's the one who asks her about um, Shiganshina um, being evacuated because I guess his company, the the Reeves company, was involved with with rebuilding that district. Were they the ones who were trying to get the cart? So I'm thinking back to this, and it's been so long since I've seen this these episodes. But were they the ones that um, like he was the guy who's trying to get his carts full of merchandise through the entrance um, to the wall? but it was blocking everyone else's ability to leave. Like basically it was a huge roadblock for everyone, putting them all at risk because of the Titans. And then doesn't mm -hmm. he get his like ass handed to him and then he becomes like a better person after that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that was him. I think, yeah, I'm like, I vaguely remember it, but it is nice to kind of see him come back again. Again, Isayama not wasting any character. While he doesn't play a huge role, he did bring him back into the fray and here he is kind of... Um, you know, using his relationship with Hanj to kind of put that that conflict there. 
And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think he mentions that the um, Shiganshina district is being evacuated and presumably it's being used as a test site for the rumbling. And, you know, hearkening back to Hanja's leadership abilities, she seems very uneasy about its effectiveness, although it seems that Aaron has had an about face now and agrees with Zeke's plan to support the rumbling. So I'm curious to see if we will see that Shiganshina district evacuation come to any fruition. Right after that, that scene with Luis and Mikasa was kind of confusing to me. When I first watched the episode, I kind of left it thinking, why did Luis saluting Mikasa trigger her memories of Aaron saving her? Um, and I was kind of like, was it because she reminds Mikasa of her old self and kind of why she joined the scouts in the first place? But as I thought about it a little bit more, and again, it's it's not quite hitting for me. Maybe I'm just missing something here. But this flashback almost is kind of like in a new light. Like it takes that, that scene and puts it in a new light, one that's more intense and gory and almost kind of feels wrong. And I wonder if that's supposed to symbolize Mikasa starting to question Aaron based on like these early signs or choices he made as they were growing up and then kind of where he's at now. Um, Because it was just so interesting that that moment, which when we first watched it was almost shown in a light of bravery for Aaron and Mikasa is now shown as like him being a psycho murderer, basically. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way. I I kind of had different notes here where Mikasa has seen Luis like firmly support Aaron and that forces her to kind of reflect on where her loyalties still remain with Aaron. Because um, when she she does the Sasagio salute, yeah, the the phrase Shinzo wo Sasagio, um, I think roughly translates to dedicate your heart. And I think Mikasa's own heart doesn't seem to be very dedicated to Aaron. But yeah, you bring up a, a good point about whether or not she's seeing Aaron in a positive or negative light anymore. One thing about Luis's appearance in this episode, it seems like Luis and Mikasa were supposed to have a more significant connection, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've seen Luis throughout in the whole series. I think so, yeah. So it just felt like this relationship was just shoehorned into the anime from the manga, um, and I feel like it would have been more effective if we had seen Luis from the very start where again it says that Mikasa had saved her during the Battle of Trost. Um and that was the first time that the Colossal Titan had reemerged after his initial appearance, um, when Aaron's mother died. Um but yeah, it was just weird that Mikasa was having this conversation with her and it was a character that we weren't really familiar with, but now she's being used as a way for Mikasa to reassess her feelings about Aaron. Yeah, I agree. It kind of just came out of left field. It's almost like Luis is simping for Mikasa because she's like, oh, is this the cell that you stayed in? Like mm-hmm. all excited or something and just kind of says that she admires Mikasa and, and, you know, understands why she joined the scouts in the first place and that her being saved by Mikasa is what made her want to also join the scouts. Um, it also kind of feels like like a parallel, but not a parallel to Kaya and Sasha because Sasha saved Kaya and let, that led Kaya down this path of, you know, wanting to help other people. And then Mikasa saves Luis and then she's on a path of wanting to, to join the scouts. But it, it just feels different. Like there's this special connection perhaps between Kaya and Sasha, but 
there's like not a, a special connection between Mikasa and Luis because Mikasa is like, I recommend you keep your mouth shut. Yeah. At the end of the episode, we get um, a little more Yelena screen time, although she doesn't really say anything. But overall, this scene is kind of telling us that Pixies finds Yelena to be sus at this point. Um, he's kind of putting two and two together and, and assumes that she influenced Flock and Aaron early on. Yeah, I think I I said this last time. Like, There's something that seems off about Yelena, and this kind of confirms it. Um, I don't think there is like any malicious intent. I don't know if she's, I don't think she's trying to like triple cross everyone, but she, I guess the thing about her is that she was trying to, she's probably being used to convince Aaron um, through Fluck to support Zeke's plan because as we saw in the flashbacks in the previous episode, Aaron was not react, he did not react warmly to Zeke's three point plan, but all of a sudden he does now. Um, it's probably also like a timing thing right like zeke only has a year left on his contract as of the first episode in the season and i don't know how much time has passed at this point but it's like time is ticking and mm -hmm. she knows that i mean aaron knows it for himself but he's at least got a couple of years left so i'm sure it's also her just trying to move shit along because parody seems to move at a snail's pace because they don't realize what they're really up against with the rest of the world coming to attack them um, so I could see that being maybe a motivation for her going this backhanded kind of route. Also, Pixies is a creepy old man during this scene. I know. He kind of like <laughs> hits on her and yeah, she like, like a, doesn't even react like, to oh, it. Oh, yeah. I get to talk to a pretty lady. It's like, <laughs> why would you say that? I know. Especially because the last scene that we had with Pixies and, and Yelena when they were kind of preparing to incarcerate the volunteers, he they had this nice exchange where it was kind of like, Pixies was sad that he had to do what he had to do and Yelena understood why he was doing that and they both kind of agreed that they were looking forward to sitting at the same table again in the future once everything kind of settled down but then this kind of like took away from that it just made it seem like mm -hmm. he's only being nice to her because he's got the hots for her I don't know I like Pixie so I'm hoping that this was just him being friendly in a way that maybe didn't come off totally friendly and just a creepy old man so with this episode being titled Deceiver, I kind of wanted to do a quick rundown of all the deceiving that's happening in this episode. I mean, there's plenty of it outside of this episode, but just looking at this episode in particular, we first get Flock deceiving Hanj by leaking the information about Aaron. Um, we also get, which is tied to that, Yelena deceiving basically like everyone, it seems, um, and kind of working with potentially or possibly Flock and Aaron on the side. Um, they talk about how Zeke deceived Marley. That was Gabby when she was yapping away. Uh, and then Gabby and Falco deceived the guard at the jail and they deceived the Browse family. But there's also possibly one more deceiver in this episode because really when we get these titles for these Attack on Titan episodes, it's pretty clear what it's tied to. But in this episode, it's not as clear. Like, I think maybe it could be about Yelena deceiving people, but she had so little screen time that I don't think the title of Deceiver is about her. My theory, which is also um, a theory that our friend Kevin had, hey, Kevin, Kevin, is that the Deceiver in this episode is actually Reiner. With that post credit scene, we see him... Um, be the first one and maybe the only one to speak up about a surprise attack on parody saying that we don't have any time to waste Zeke is anticipating us taking our time we need to attack them now so yeah my guess is that reiner is probably deceiving marley deceiving the warriors um 
his motives and mentality up until now have been kind of like flip floppy and a bit ambiguous. But again, I think all signs are kind of maybe pointing to Reiner as the deceiver. It's either that or he's using this as an opportunity to finally die. He's probably like suicide mission. Count me in. Yeah, but I think like we both are kind of rooting for a redemption arc for Reiner. And this is the opportunity to get that. Um, but yeah, even though he, he doesn't really get much screen time as much as Yelena does. But yeah, I think he could be the um, eponymous deceiver in this episode. And I think one thing that kind of gives that away is, um, I forget if it's Galliard or Colt that kind of freaks out about um, Marley's plan to, to start an invasion of parodies, but only six months. I think it's Colt. He like is is worried about the two of them. Yeah. But there was one shot where you see one of their eyes. I'm I'm pretty sure it was Galliard's, but you see his, his eyes like moving nervously, but then it cuts to Reiner whose eyes are like just stone cold. Like they're really focused. Um, I don't know. Something about that seems like it, it, confirms that theory that reiner is the deceiver because he is firm in what he wants to do next which is die he just Mm -hmm. wants to die peacefully but no going back to what you were saying about the reiner redemption arc yeah i'm all for that um like yeah it hurt when we all found out that reiner betrayed the scouts but i've always in general liked his character and unlike gabby i can understand the things um that he's done up until this point and his point of view um just because of his whole backstory so i don't know i i still i still hold out for him like i still hope that he even if he ends up dying in the end that he has some sort of redemption for the the things that he did however many years ago it was when they were kids Mm -hmm. last but not least we have the preview and not much is shown but it does look like things may start to get interesting because they show an explosion most likely that explosion is going to be like the cliffhanger for the episode and be at the very end but i'm i'm questioning if that's the same building where yelena is being held because you get that out that exterior shot of the building before we see her in her cell with pixies and it looks like the same building or very similar and then we do see yelena and pixies outside in one of the shots yeah, I was trying to figure that out too. Um, once we got to preview, but yeah, it was it was kind of hard to tell if it was the if it was a government building or the same building that Yelena and Pixies were in. I think hopefully in this episode we'll get a a conclusion to what happened in episode sixty nine, um, harkening back to the the special house wine that was the being, fucking wine yeah, that was being passed around parodies. Um, I'm hoping to see like that being tied up with everything that's helping or happening in these other parts of parodies and what this explosion could mean, um, whether it's more double or triple or quadruple crossing. Um, and the only reason I say that is because the narrator during the preview says, by now one should have been used to the shifting of the truth. So we're probably going to get more bombshells in this episode that are just going to rock our world. I'm also wondering, like, are they going to finish the story by the end of this short-ass season? Like, there's literally no Mm -hmm. way they can finish the show with just a few more episodes left. So my guess is either they're going to announce a part two of the season, which I would be all for, or there have been, like, some slight rumors online um, of a possible movie, which I could also be for, um, but it just, I don't know, is two hours enough to, like 
finish the story. <laughs> yeah, there's only five episodes left at this point, and I don't know if they plan to close out this story in just five episodes. Uh, I That's kinda, a tall order. I really hope yeah. they don't try to do that. My hope is that kind of like what they did w- at the end of last season where they gave us the the visual for um, season four, the final season, like we'll get an announcement at the end of episode 16. What would that be here? Like episode 75 um, where they just say part two coming later half of 2021. But it, the weird thing is like, I'm pretty sure the manga is about to end in April. I um, think so. Yeah. So it, I think this would have timed out if this is indeed going to be the end for the entire series, it would line up pretty much with the end of the manga. But I don't know. I hope for um, a second half, much like we did, or much like we got with um, season three, parts one and two. But we'll see. And if we do get a part two, you got to bring Linked Horizon back. Hell yeah. And I'm going to say that time and time again until we we finally get that confirmation but it's like i think we talked about this before that's the one thing mappa's been doing a fantastic phenomenal job with this fourth season but we talked about how the one thing that's missing the one thing that like they didn't get right or i don't even know if it was their decision was not having linked horizon for the opening so having a part two of the season could be that opportunity but also just you know mappa keep doing what you're doing do not rush things don't have a game of thrones moment if you need more time, take more time. If you need more episodes or a movie, please do that. I'm sure you've got all the funding in the world because this is like the biggest anime right now. So please just do this right. As long as it's not two more years of waiting until the next, if there is a part two. Yeah, don't give us that. What was It was the gap between season one and two, right? That yeah. felt like an eternity because it was an eternity. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. I think next episode, while the preview looks subdued, I think it'll be a good episode. And that brings us to our final thoughts for Attack on Titan Season 4, Episode 70, Deceiver. So how many Kaya clapbacks out of 10 would you give this episode? I would give it a 7 out of 10, which I think might be my lowest rating so far. Um, No, before you think it or say it, it's not just because Gabby's in it and she fucking sucks. That does play a little bit of a role in it but it's more so again because this is not an episode i was looking forward to the first episode of the season i was not looking forward to watching a second time um i just think overall again we got great information good character development um etc but there's something about this episode that just isn't as gripping as others and while there's a lot that happens it also feels like not a lot happens like there's a lot of things going on, a lot of talking going on, but how much do we really progress the plot at this point? Um, so yeah, I think that this episode was okay. Um, still good, but um, just like not as amazing as some of the others. So what about you? I'm kind of floating around the same score, but I would give this seven and a half out of 10. Um, the episode only gives us like crumbs of exposition and setup uh, compared to the previous episode, A Sound Argument, which gave us some pretty pretty nice foundations uh, moving forward. But yeah, there really, like you said, there really wasn't a lot going on in this episode besides um, Gabby didn't necessarily get the reality check that I was hoping for. Uh, but I think her scene with Kaya where Kaya puts her in her place was just satisfying enough to see. So this one was just, just an okay episode, but 
nothing to write back home to Marley about. And that wraps up this special episode of Strictly Anime. New special episodes release every Wednesday following the new episode of Attack on Titan. This is in addition to our regular schedule for Strictly Anime. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on the anime that we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. Sasageo. Shinzo wa sasageo. Get me fucked, 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 get me fucked.